Hello and welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, the leading cybersecurity site for high-level security experts. Welcome to part two of our podcast on cyber extortion with Tim Lamban, director of NYA, the global response team. This week, we'll be exploring the stigma attached to admitting your business has been a victim of ransomware, the emotional trauma victims can face, how GDPR has empowered the criminals, as well as Tim's top tips for dealing with cyber extortion. As usual, I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a cyber tip of the week. But first, here is Tim recounting the most memorable cyber extortion cases he's worked on to date. It's not really one case, but there are some uh, extraordinary things. that. Uh, so there was um, one particular case, which was a data theft um, very large company um, that had three guys who were um, sort of mutual uh, CISOs. They were in charge of all the IT and the security involved. And one of these guys, the, the CEO said to me, listen, if I was to have a problem with my IT, I would call one of these three guys, and this guy would be the guy that I would, I would call. He was the one responsible for going around and kicking everybody else's butts about making sure that their security software was up to date. The security software on his laptop had been turned off two years previously. Somebody had managed to get a keylogger onto his, um, onto his uh, keyboard. They had basically downloaded all over time because... What a keylogger does is it sends back every single stroke that is made on the keys, and also it will copy mouse movements as well. So every time he logged into his account, even though there was um, dual-factor uh, authentication, um, and there was, uh, you know, if there were 16 uh, digits or letters involved in, the, uh, in the, the password and you only had to put in four of them and those changed each time you went in, over a period of time, you will get all of those uh, with a keylogger. You will find out what all of those are. You have to sit down and do a hell of a lot of work to wind your way through exactly which ones are the keystrokes that are putting in the, the passwords, but it's possible. And there's software out there that will do that for you. And uh, thereby, this guy got in. And having got in, he then exfiltrated, I don't know, about 4.6 terabytes of um, of data, which was essentially most of their uh, client database and a lot of um, records and, and legal documents and things like that. Uh, so that was a, a big issue for them. Um, the other one was um, a tech startup, which you would have thought, being tech, had some idea of security. Not a thing. They basically got... Um, they... they uh, in that they were, you know, very millennial in their approach to things. Um, it was a bring-your-own society. This was a startup where you brought your own computer along. Um, they would have interns coming along. This was an organization that um, in three years had grown to have 6.5 million customers. They were running 1,000 AWS servers in Ireland. And an intern who came along to do a five-week internship in the engineering department brought her own computer. Very nice. 
except that she didn't have a way of getting into um, all this stuff to work on the projects and the small bits that she was given to do as an intern. And so she asked if she could have you know, access. And they said, oh, yeah, just use this. And they gave her the, the, uh, the keys um, to get in and do the kind of work that uh, she was required to do. And it turned out later that actually those keys were never personalized. They were just bandied around the department, um, you know, uh, willy-nilly. And, of course, she had a piece of keylogging software on her, um, on her laptop. We're not quite sure how that got on there, but the bottom line was that it was there. And uh, this guy, the threat actor, managed to get every single one of their um, uh, keys to get in. He then subverted five profiles. He created another three of his own. And he basically worked inside the whole system. Now, the interesting thing was he thought that um, the best time to exfiltrate uh, all the data was at Christmas. How he hadn't clocked that this was a Muslim organization, I have no idea, so it didn't really make any difference. But the bottom line was that he, um, uh, he did get a whole lot of stuff out because they didn't have any, any monitoring systems to see what was going out and what was coming in. So they had no ops normal, and when things were spiking because he was taking out you know, huge amounts of data in one hit, no alarm bells rang. And then suddenly the next day, you know, two uh, emails sent from inside the AWS alerting system, which he had subverted, to the CEOs, said, hello guys, I got your gear, now you have to pay. Amazing. Um, You mentioned legislation. I was just curious about your thoughts on what rules you'd like to see put in place, or, I mean, do you think... It's too, too early to say. Um, maybe you have some thoughts about legislation. Um, well, I don't know about rules that could be put in place. Uh, that's, that's quite a difficult one. But what I can say about GDPR is my personal opinion of GDPR, my professional opinion of GDPR, is that it has empowered the extortionists. Because GDPR is such a, um, uh, such a strong piece of legislation that although what it tries to achieve is to secure everybody's data and to allow people to get their data back from legitimate users, what it does, because it has such a uh, um, stringent reporting regime for compliance should you get hacked, is that it's given the hugest weapon to the extortionist. If somebody gets in and gets your data and your data is subject to GDPR, all he has to do is say to you, you've got 72 hours before GDPR comes down and takes, what, 4% for your national turnover. You better pay me. So GDPR, nice idea, guys, but actually you've just given a huge machine gun to the bad boys. So do you think there'll be some... Modifications with the GDPR. Well, I don't see it because GDPR is a bit like, like health and safety for uh, for cyber. You know, all this painting yellow lines on steps and holding onto the rail as you go down the stairs, and you know the kind of stuff which, quite frankly, um, in the world that I come from, where we're having to deal with real stuff, 
where people are getting shot and killed and, and maimed. Um, is It's like trying to apply uh, health and safety to an army fighting a war. just doesn't happen because the whole point of this is that you have to take those kind of risks and you're going to either be killed or be, uh, kill or be killed. And uh, what GDPR does is it tries to impose that kind of regime on a system which is based on the idea that it's law-abiding. And it's not. You know, the, the, uh, the virtual sphere is one of the least law-abiding places in the world. And there are a lot of people that even if there were any rules, they'd just say, we're not paying any attention to those. So it's difficult. Um, I mean, I've just been through the most extraordinary uh, negotiation with an organization from Europe who had a very, very narrow interpretation of GDPR. And this was because they're having a, a real extortion. Um, somebody at, uh, is working at one of their factories and has basically been threatening the CEO, etc. And they phoned us up and said, can you come and do a threat assessment for us? That's what we do all the time. Sure, we'll go in there, we'll interview all sorts of different people. We'll probably be able to find out who the person is. And you can wrap this thing up with law enforcement. But they said, oh, oh well, just before we do that, um, can we just get you to sign this um, uh, data processing agreement? So I looked through the data processing agreement. And on the data processing agreement, it had a clause that said, uh, at the end of this case, um, you will be required by our company um, who are the, uh, the controllers of the data, not the processors of the data, because those two distinctions are made in GDPR, to uh, either delete or return all information that you have garnered during this thing. Now, we are a professional organization that is required by a number of different uh, rules and regulations to keep documents. Once the case is finished, somebody should be able to come here in 10 years' time and say to me, what happened there? Who did it happen to, and what did you do about it? And I can produce the documentation and say, here it is. This clause said that I couldn't keep those documents. So how on earth was I ever going to sign them? And so through this narrow, and if you look into the GDPR legislation, there is that provision. But if you read it too narrowly, that this is the result, and it took me three months to negotiate this. In the meantime, the threat to the life of their CEO was going on all the time. Whereas, in fact, what that is to do with, my interpretation of what that's to do with is, say you are a company that wants to send out a mail shot. You send out the names and addresses of all the people that you want the mail shot to the mailing company. They address all the envelopes. The envelopes will go out, and at the end of that, they either have to delete or return those names and addresses to you. But you can also translate that as, at the end of the case, you have to get rid of all your documents. It's never going to happen. And so if GDPR was followed in a very narrow way around the world, you would have basically just a logjam of negotiations as to what people were prepared to do or weren't prepared to do. You mentioned the CEO and their life being at risk. It sounds like a quite quite an, uh, an emotional ordeal, all of this. Do you, do you see this happen a lot? You know, the, the victims are quite affected, distraught? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of people who are not used to 
basically having their lives threatened or their livelihoods threatened. You know, it could be a um, an avocado farmer in Mexico who some thugs come along and say, listen, if you don't pay us our, uh, our what is essentially protection money, uh, we'll burn down your warehouse. You know, so you can get quite emotional about that. But that's what we do as response consultants. We go in there. We see this every day, so we don't have to get emotional about it. We also know that it is something that can be dealt with. Most people see it and go, oh my God, what am I going to do about this? Um, whereas we say, don't worry, we've seen this before. This is the best way to deal with it. These are your options. We suggest that this one's the best one. The second one's not too bad either. We wouldn't um, you know, suggest the third or fourth one be, be the routes that you take. It's up to you which ones you want to do, and we will help you through those. But uh, you know, that's what we do. We, uh, we deal with other people's crises all the time. I know in 2017 there were a lot of cases that went unreported. Um, does this fear of reporting, the, the, the stigma, still exist with companies you, you talk to about reporting ransomware cases? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. Um, there are, in the end, only two types of, of, of companies. There are companies that have been hacked, and there are companies that have not been hacked yet, basically. Um, and the court of public opinion is now much more relaxed about the fact that you've been hacked. But once again, I come back to the whole thing of the crisis communications plan. It depends on when they find out or when you tell them. It depends on how they find out or how you tell them. It depends on who tells them and how they find out. And so if you have got your act together and you have a mature crisis communications plan, you control that message. And as long as you control that message and you tell people in time, you, you tell them in a way that makes them sympathetic towards you, and you tell them as much detail as they need to know to protect themselves and to show that you're being transparent, you don't have a problem. Because, as I said, if you haven't been hacked yet, you will be hacked in the future, and everybody knows that now. And so, whereas previously, you know, things like... Um, uh, talk, talk, and stuff like that. Huge PR disasters. Um, I dealt with a very similar organization in one of the Scandinavian countries, um, also a mobile phone provider, who had basically about three-quarters of, uh, of their information uh, taken. Um, and uh, they were relaxed about it. They didn't go to the press or tell anybody for over a week. And I was having absolute kittens. I sent them all the... The videos from YouTube of Dido Harding getting eaten alive by Jeremy Paxman and people like that. And said to them, you know, I hope you guys are getting your CEO trained up for this kind of stuff. They said, oh, yeah, don't worry about this. So I said, oh, really? Um, they said, well, a couple of things. First of all, we know that the data is two years old. And this is one of the things that affects your perception of data is what is the half-life of that data? Um, at what stage will that data become irrelevant and the other thing is that they basically said, um, it's old data, in two years' time it's not going to be worth anything at all. And anyway, we don't have a press like the British press. It is not a rabid dog that just wants to eat you. Uh, we have a sympathetic press. And they were absolutely right. They, they got their communications plan in, in line. It was completely mature. They knew who was going to tell whom at what stage, and they put a deadline on it. And the deadline was 7 o'clock in the morning on a Monday, which was 
timed to hit all the breakfast um, news, both on television and radio. They'd sorted out what their message was. They'd trained their CEO, who was going to make the statements and, and answer, go on breakfast television and answer the, uh, the, the, uh, the questioning. Um, and they started to put out those messages in a controlled fashion before that, and then they had the deadline, and he went live. And their stock actually went up, despite the really? fact that they'd had three-quarters of their, their customer database hacked. You compare that to... Um, poor Dido Harding's uh, talk talk debacle where the whole thing just canned so beware of the British press <laughs> yeah British press is a rabid dog so what are your top takeaways for dealing with cyber extortion make sure that you have got everything in place to, to not get extorted in the first place um, but of course you know somebody will find a way and the your strongest asset but also your weakest point is your people so your weakest point is your people. It might be the lady in, in accounts who gets that email saying, please remit such and such a, an amount to so-and-so uh, bank account and doesn't actually pick up the phone and phone the supplier and say, is this your bank account? So that's the first thing. Um, and they are also your strongest because they will be the people who pick up on the incoming and say, hmm, something not quite right here. Let's just have a look at this. Uh, so they're your defense, they're also your weakness. Um, never think that you don't have to pay a ransom. Because sometimes the ransom will give you uh, advantages and will allow you to get in control. And that's what you need. You need to be back in control. When your data is taken away from, you lose control. And... Uh, Actually, the most important thing is have backups that work. But also make sure that your backups are not, um, cannot be penetrated as well. So you need to have several backups, backups that are regular and backups that have air gaps. But as Stuxnet, which was developed by the, the, uh, the Americans and the, uh, and the Israelis, showed... Even when you've got an air gap, if there's a determined enemy, they will jump it. So there is no perfect defense. But what I would say is, if you've got, uh, just put in place what you can. And if you do have an incident, get hold of people who can help you with it as soon as possible. The number of times that we have been called onto a case after the IT department has been looking at it for the last week. Uh, I can think of a particular institution that had all their uh, um, all their their um, customer files taken. They um, had been unable to do any business for a week, and uh, the demand was about three bitcoins. And in bitcoins in those days were only about forty about four thousand um, four thousand dollars a bitcoin. So we weren't talking a huge amount here. It was about twelve thousand pounds. Um, I said, we walked in, we said, so what's happening? I said, oh, well, the IT's been trying to rectify this problem for the last, uh, for the last week. I said, oh, okay. And have you been able to operate? No. How much does it cost you each day? 6,000 pounds a day. Do the math, guys. Pay three bitcoins and save yourself two days' worth of, uh, of, of, of problems. Um, so, yeah. Sometimes there's just a dis disconnect. 
get hold of people who can help you soon. Don't rely on your IT. Because in the end, the IT are the guys who failed. It's the, the fox in charge of the hen house. When you try and get your IT to find out what happened, they'll be covering their asses. And a bit of breathing, I suppose. Yeah, well, you know, the breather, there's very little breathing in the first few days. It's only as, you, as your, your defense and your crisis comms um, starts to mature and as you get to understand exactly what it is that they've got and just what the half-life is and how important it is or not. Thanks to Tim. Excellent advice there. And now, time for our cyber tip of the week. Make sure you set the privacy settings on all your social media accounts to maximum privacy. And tell all your family and friends too. Just because your privacy settings are secure, it doesn't mean the criminals won't take advantage of those people in your life who tend to overshare on social media. We all know who they are. Thanks for listening. Remember, our flagship event, the European Information Security Summit, is approaching in February 2019. For more information, check the events section of our website. That's tice.co.uk, T-E-I-S-S For now, it's goodbye from us. Join us next week for more cybersecurity conversations.